Hey, this is Joe Bakmutsky, and welcome to Simplify Cancer podcast. Today I'm talking to Christopher. He's an expert in psychosocial cancer research. And today we take a plunge into the deep and murky waters of the psychology of cancer, how that affects you and those you love. Christopher has a true mind of the philosopher, and there's a lot of ground to cover here, so I know you're going to love this. Christopher, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure. Christopher, you know, cancer changes the way other people see you, and that can have a huge negative impact on how you see yourself. What's your perspective on that? I think that uh, most of the reasons why other people are changing their point of view on a person who has been diagnosed and treated for cancer is that it raises fears about dying, and you are suddenly close to a person who uh, you know is undergoing a really severe treatment which is life-threatening and you are mirroring yourself in this person and therefore you are actually getting afraid not that you are going around with an epidemic disease so to speak an infectious disease but that that you in some ways feel the vulnerability of this person it's a way transferred to yourself and therefore you think that is the reason why, or that is some of the reason why there's a change in the interaction between uh, people that are diagnosed with cancer and their close relatives and, and friends and colleagues and so on. So you think it's, it's that they are afraid of dying themselves? In a way, the, the fear of dying, which is a constant issue we are struggling with, is becoming more realistic, so to speak, in a, in a cancer patient, but it also is mirroring out or spreading out in the, in the closest surroundings as a phenomenon, one of many phenomena that uh, is close to, to a cancer disease. Yeah, absolutely, Christopher. And what about the self-image? What about how the people see themselves? Do, do you notice that people who are cancer patients and cancer survivors, do they start to see themselves in a different way and perceive themselves to be to be different and behave in a different way the way they are out in the world? We know from, from some of the scientific studies that there's some degree of self-stigmatization coming along with a cancer diagnosis. First of all, you can imagine that those patients having a cancer, which we know is closely related to lifestyle, for example, let's say lung cancer is associated with smoking, may feel guilt, uh, ascribe the disease to their own behavior, and therefore feel that they are, in a way, the reason why they have cancer. I know that there are several places where people who have lifestyle-associated cancers are asking for treatment time slots, which is in the early morning or late afternoon, not to meet other patients and to tell them which diagnosis they have and what they are treated for, because they are afraid and do not feel they can stand up for the diagnosis they have, because it's clearly mostly associated with lifestyle. So for that reason, that is an example of change. There's also these diseases where partly lose control with some of the vital functions. Let's say you get a colostomy or you get a prostate cancer, so you don't control your urination as well as you did beforehand. And then these diseases, you also see a kind of a social self-isolation because it's difficult to go down to the supermarket or be in a company with other friends or conduct activities that you could do beforehand. So, so in many ways, there are some cancer diseases where you see these changes in behavior caused by the cancer or the treatment. But of course, it's also a change to yourself because you have another perspective of life when you are uh, having a diagnosis of cancer. 
That makes so much sense, Christopher. And I know that you did a, a study that has categorically proven that stress, your personality traits, uh, and depression do not cause cancer. And I believe that's incredibly important, Christopher, because it means that you can't blame yourself for cancer as, as some people do. What's your view on that? Well, we, we set out on this investigations because it was a quite prevalent point of view in the late 60s and 70s and up uh, in the last century, that uh, stress is the, a major risk factor for, for severe disease. If you ask people um, today, I think you would you would get the response that stress can cause many of the severe chronic diseases. And don't forget that people believe that you got um, ventricular ulcers from stress. They also thought that tuberculosis was caused by stress, uh, asthma cardiovascular disease and so on was in the beginning diseases where you thought that this was caused by exposures in your surroundings that alerted your entire immune function. We have in large population-based studies uh, using nationwide data and access to almost complete follow-up information, not been able to confirm this hypothesis in up to close to now 20 large-scale studies. And, and that is, of course, a very interesting thing because it's uh, a falsification of the idea that uh, the factors you mentioned before, personality traits, depression and stress can cause cancer. And I think it's very important to inform people that you cannot blame yourself with regard to these factors. Of course, you can blame to some extent yourself for other factors. But all the biologists that I work together with here, they always say it's, it's, it's a lottery. It's by random that you achieve cancer. You cannot very often ascribe the entire disease to yourself because, as you know, there are many people who can tolerate smoking. Many people can drink enormously amounts of alcohol and will never get any disease. And we don't really know who are the ones at risk. Yes, yeah, so well, that's that's certainly great news, Christopher, because, uh, yeah, like, like I said, we, we don't really have to feel guilty anymore. On the flip side of that, some people believe that having a positive um, attitude, positive psychological approach can help deal with cancer in a better way. Is there any evidence, do you think, to say that it's true? I don't think there's sufficient evidence that if you behave uh, in certain ways or you are very positive, have a positive mindset, that you have a better survival chance. What changes if you have this attitude is, of course, that you would probably change your behavior and therefore, you could say that behavioral changes maybe play a major role. So in some ways, what I'm saying is that the, the mind factor in itself probably cannot change the prognosis of the cancer disease. But what is coming in the key word of that, of course, have some impact. The starting point of this was studies from a UK-based group, uh, Stephen Greer's group, who in the late 80s published a paper in The Lancet where they showed that fighting spirit was uh, in, in cancer patients was superior compared to helplessness or hopelessness in surviving cancer. So this was a way of putting words on the entire concept of coping with a cancer disease. But the same group 10 years after published a follow-up study in which they now had information about somatic factors related to the disease and couldn't confirm their, their prior results, which uh, of course, was a relief because what about all those cancer patients who hadn't been positive all the way through and who had negative days or bad days? Should they then blame themselves that they were not coping with life entirely positively and therefore, uh, in a way, also could blame themselves that they didn't survive the cancer disease? I think my take on all this is that, of course, you can say that that mindset plays a role because it influences the, the risk factors we know. And today we, we are saying that 
cancer patients uh, should have a lifestyle which is the same as people keep to or stick to if they want to avoid cancer. So the, the impact of a psychological intervention is that you probably will have a better life in terms of a quality of life, a better understanding of your situation. And the secondary effect could be that it influences your your, your prognosis. But that's not because you have a better, so to say, mindset, but because you potentially have a better opportunity to change your behavior. But what we also see is, of course, that those that can afford to go to a psychologist will be more affluent, have longer education, and be living in marital relationships. And this points to the fact that social inequality probably is of much more importance when we talk about um, survival. Even in the Scandinavian countries where you have a public health system, which means that you have free access to all kind of uh, medical services from the GP to the highly specialized oncology ward. In these countries, we have up to 20% difference in survival when we look at any social marker and for any cancer disease. This is across all cancer diseases. Well, so what role does it play? How does it work? It works, I think, in, in the way that, that people with short education, living alone, and having comorbidity and data diagnosis of their cancer will potentially have more comorbidity when they're diagnosed. They'll be diagnosed in a later stage and probably their compliance with the treatment will be lower. But also the resources they have at hand when they leave the, tra- the treatment uh, situation are fewer and therefore they are not in the same situation, so to speak, to start off the life as a cancer survivor. Well, Christopher, that's certainly an eye-opening finding. I mean, I never would have thought of that. What do you think can be done about it as for us as a society? What can we do to change that? Well, the most of our modern industrialized societies, societies, of course, there are variations. But that builds on a contract where you expect that if you pay tax, you will have a uniform, homogeneous return from government in, in the form of public pensions, uh, free schools, uh, the highways should be nice. Uh, we would have uh, green parks and clean beaches, and we expect that our children could go to a school would give them a basic education. But all that said, which I think is is a meaningful cooperative idea, and it's very well developed, as you know, in the Scandinavian countries, still produce inequality, and that calls, in my mind, for unequal treatment. What happens today is that we give all cancer patients, in principle, the same treatment, the same package. But now if we really were uh, taking the evidence seriously, we would understand that we need to make in or unequal treatment to achieve the equalness. So if we need achieve homogeneity in survival, we cannot do that without having heterogeneity in the way we treat patients. So that means that the well-educated, affluent citizen diagnosed with prostate cancer would not have the same follow-up, the same support from nurses, the same intervention, Mm. the same surveillance as the cancer patient with prostate cancer coming from a more poor condition. But that's very much against the whole system because we do not expect that people would be willing to pay tax and support the society if they wouldn't get some kind of return of their investment, so to speak. So how would we make a policy where we then have citizens that accept to pay more than they gain? This is already the case now because most of them that are paying to the public system, they are not. They are, have in parallel private pensions or private health insurances. They have all kind of private or union-based or pension, you know, situation-based mm. things that are running. And this means that it's also a societal discussion because you could 
you could carry on this thinking in, in relation to should I then have the pension from the government? Well, maybe not. Should I then have free kindergarten? Well, I should not have that. Maybe I should pay some more for it. Or should I pay a little bit for the university because I can afford it? So this is a big thing, so to speak, to talk about. Absolutely. Christopher, sleep problems are common during and after treatment. What do you recommend some of the ways to deal with that? Well, they are now just coming out of uh, another Danish group, a very interested web-based uh, sleeping program that I did see uh, coming up in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute, uh, which was a study where they showed that a, a web-based application actually uh, significantly helped uh, patients with, with sleep disturbances. There are also many discussions ongoing about the combination of cognitive models, cognitive uh, approaches, and physical training. So you combine uh, various interventions in order to achieve some kind of a, an, an effect with regard to sleep. What we don't know so much about is, of course, how much is caused by the cancer disease? How much is caused by the fear of having the cancer, the fear of recurrence? How much is caused by the treatment? Or how much is simply at play because you are now not 18 years old and can sleep forever. You are 65 or 70 and you are an old person or an elderly citizen who is expected to have some kind of sleep problems, so to speak, which means shorted sleep periods, irregular sleep. Uh, you wake up maybe one or two times at night and then you start sleeping again, where when you are below the age of 20, you can sleep continuously for many, many hours. And then that's not the case for uh, for citizens that is old. And therefore, we are in a way also a little bit stepping around and not really knowing uh, how se- not 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 the severity, but the, the the true incidence of this phenomena. Although today we would say that that is one of the big three late effects across all cancer diseases: fatigue depression and, and and consistent pain problems is probably the the big three so uh, sorry so just to uh, go back to that so so the big three problems around cancer are depression so depression pain pain and fatigue and fatigue okay yeah. so is the sort of depression that we're talking about is this different from is this clin- this is clinical depression is it right yeah yeah well Yes. So this is not different from a so-called ordinary, if you can talk about that, depression. This is this is a regular depression that fulfills criteria for depression in accordance with the classification system of diseases. Yeah, well. We say that 20% of cancer cases will experience a clinical depressive episode during the first five years after diagnosis. Wow, that's staggering statistics. So one in five people, uh, one in five cancer survivors will get depression. Within the first five years after date of time. Within the first five years. Yeah. Wow. So what, what are the factors that you believe are responsible for that? Because if we think about cancer survivors, I guess, you know, cancer is gone. You're trying to live a normal life. Obviously, some you might have some lingering side effects. You might have the fear of cancer coming back. So what are the biggest factors re- behind this depression? Of course, it plays a role. Uh, I mean, social factors and age probably plays a role, but it, 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 it's difficult to say because we do not have large-scale studies in which we have investigated uh, across different cancer diseases. But there are, of course, uh, you could say that there are vulnerable patients, uh, and these are mostly, maybe it's stupid to say, but in a way outliers, meaning that if, if you are having difficulties in your economic condition or your resources, if you have had a complicated disease situation during your treatment or 
if your tumor is difficult to find, for example, a systemic therapy that it responds to, and that is uh, playing a role in the cancer treatment you can provide to this patient. All these factors that I mentioned here are factors that play a role. Most importantly, it is that we do not have in any country a systematic screening for depression. And we don't know how we should do it, when and how often. And that needs to be, I mean, much more clarified because we have shown in a couple of large studies that if you have depression, you actually die earlier, mostly because you're not following the protocol of treatment that you should, either because you are, when you're depressed, not able to do it or it is difficult for you or because you're not provided this treatment because you as a depressed patient behave differently in the outpatient clinic or you, you, you don't comply with, with the issues at stake, so to speak, with the, with the conversation or the diagnostic workout and so on. So there are many reasons. What I'm sure trying to show you is this complicated puzzle of reasons and, and risk factors for that situation. But I want to point at it because it is in my mind, at overseen and overlooked an overlooked issue. Absolutely. Christopher, and mindfulness has, has gained a lot of attention lately uh, as a tool that can that can help to deal with anxiety and depression. How does that translate into dealing with cancer? Well first of all, don't forget that that mindfulness is a Tibetan practice. And I'm one of my colleagues who's a professor in psychology at the University of Copenhagen, went out to Nepal, to Tibet, and showed them the questionnaire we are using in the Western world to find out if people are mindful. Then he translated, back translated this questionnaire to Tibetan. And he has then made a short documentary in which these monks are laughing for half an hour because the <laughs> questions we put to say if you're mindful is so stupid and doesn't have anything to do with being mindful. So what we've done is we've taken a technique. We love the Asian mysterious pyramid sitting in the cloister somewhere deep into the Tibetan mountains, living of yak milk and <laughs> eating dried meat and the different mushrooms of mindsetting qualities and, and all that mysterious way of living we love to transform into the Western world. Going back to the late 60s where, you know, all this idea about uh, meditation, yoga, Buddhism, all this Eastern philosophy is a big thing in our mindset because we think that is more original than our own way of living. So there's also kind of a huge collective placebo in the entire aspect of, of mindfulness. On the other hand, I think it is uh, remarkable that many studies have shown actually an effect in the psychological function of people that went through this course. We tried it out ourselves also in a randomized trial and we found significantly effect on depression and anxiety. And I believe there is an effect. I'm not sure whether it's the mindfulness in itself, so to say, but it is something within that package, which I think is linked to these exercises that are truly connected to being present in the moment and be aware of what's going on and uh, being as a citizen living in a world full of, full of um, distracting mobile phones and, and, and media things going on on different sort of platforms. Of course, we are in, in a way in desperate need for originality, which is being who we are. And that need is extremely challenged when you are diagnosed with cancer. So therefore, it, 
it has really a message and an appeal to cancer patients. So I think you could say that it does play a role, but uh, I'm also, I, I love to, to remind you that it's also, there's a collective placebo function going on because we have enormous seduction going on and around all this Eastern world life philosophy because we have this imagination that they are thinking more original and more cleverly than we are. I'm not quite sure this is the case. <laughs> That's good to know. That's good to know, Christopher. We know our way around it as well. <laughs> yeah. So, so Christopher, so if, if mindfulness can help, what do you think is a good resource for someone who wanted, you know, if someone had, had cancer and wanted to help them deal with the whole mental side of it and they wanted to explore mindfulness, what would be a good resource? Is there a book or uh, an online intervention that you could recommend? I cannot go straight into recommendations because I simply don't know the market good enough. But I could say that I'm always very keen to advise you in these matters that you have to go to professionals. And, and that means in my mind that one of the things that is a little bit challenging in the world of cancer is, of course, that there are so many people who see the business opportunity in patients because they are such a vulnerable and open-minded group because they are in desperate need of taking action themselves, become editor on their own life because having a cancer is the ultimate loss of control and therefore you feel that you are out of, um, yeah, you want you want to gain that control again and, and here are such techniques as mindfulness is one way. There are various techniques offered and people are willing to pay whatever it costs to gain that control again, if they could gain some kind of control. So I cannot, uh, Joe, come up with, you know, a specific choice I would do, but I would definitely go for the most professional, the people that are attracted to university environments or connected with hospitals or the medical profession is in my mind, some kind of a quality signature that you need in these cases. Or no, not in case in this uh, situation where you're looking for, for help, for example, for mindfulness, diet, physical exercise, how do I reduce my alcohol consumption, what about stopping my smoking, can I change my work life, all these things that you, you feel is calling for your attention when you're a cancer survivor, then it's the more, the more professional support you get, the more hopefully evidence-based it would be. That's great advice, Christopher. Another thing I wanted to ask you is, I know that you looked at using book clubs to support mental health and cancer survivors. And I find that idea fascinating. So what did you find out? Uh, we didn't find out that much, but okay, first of all, the, the, the whole book reading comes from this uh, new phenomena in, in uh, many parts of the world where people are meeting in small groups and discuss a novel or some poems or poetry and then have a social gathering and that's one way of, of being sticking together when you're not anymore longing, belonging to a family or you're not belonging to these stable uh, environmental conditions that we are beforehand were part of. In this study, we just tried to find out if we could get it, uh, you know, could it work or could it not work. Of course, it can work if you have an affination, you are a book reader, you love to, to look, you have a big heart for that. We're now also working with the idea of having cooking classes for wives uh, married to prostate cancer patients in order to relieve the, the stress of being married to a prostate cancer patient. So that's another idea in this area, but all in, in total, you can say that, that going back to my previous comments, that these ideas are all like mindfulness, are all coming out of a middle-class culture where we believe we have middle-class 
ideas about what the good life is. It's a very female universe. It's a universe based on the idea of talking about your problems, about expressing your emotions. It's about uh, dealing your inner thoughts with other people. And all that is maybe not always the same ideas when you live in different conditions. And there are huge studies ongoing showing that the psychology or the psychological capital, you would call it social capital, with which you enter the, the cancer world, it's completely different from our different backgrounds. So these initiatives that I'm also a part of myself have severe limitations because they don't reach out to patients that maybe is in most need of it. But to those that are actually our friends, so to speak, because they are they're coming from the same social background as we are, and therefore they have a high compliance with our ideas about the good life. Today, the largest challenge comes from the patients that are underserved. These are the, the, the difficult patients. They don't show up when they have an appointment. They're smelling of tobacco when they enter the outpatient clinic. They're talking loud in the waiting room. They're quarreling with their co-patients. They don't read the magazines that we put out to silence people in the waiting room. They ask for the remote control so they can look at Formula One race at the television when they're in the waiting room. They don't want to see a romantic comedy. They are arguing with the nurse when they go out that the doctor was an asshole because he did do this and that, and so on and so forth. So my government just released a, a strategy for digital health technology for all in five years in Denmark. And every picture in that digital technology strategy is completely clean. It's nice people in suit. It's people with a right clean shirt. It's people who have uh, smiling kids, but that's not the reality. And therefore, we're constantly seducing ourselves to forget where the real challenge is. So going back to the question about reading a novel, well, for some people, this is, of course, a wonderful thing to do. It could be a way of, of coping with your cancer disease, but we are not addressing the real problems. So in terms of self-help, in terms of things that you can do yourself in order to try and make it better for you, what would you say are the top three things that will help someone to deal with cancer mentally, emotionally, socially? I don't know. I could. I can point to something, but I'm not sure that I'm pointing to the right three. I think it's such an individual question. But I think it's quite overlooked how much your daily lifestyle influence your life with a cancer disease. It is a extremely under-investigated, underserved, so to speak, area. And I would point to that as one area that is very more, much more important than we think because there's so many side effects in terms of psychological and social well-being that we have overlooked and have not imported into the clinic to the extension that we could do it today. That would be one area. I would also point to the area that, that you are not having your cancer disease alone. You're always having relatives a wife or a husband, children, colleagues, whatever, that are influenced by the disease. And today we understand and treat disease as a disease belonging to the individual. But in a way you could say that the disease is belonging to a social construction. This social construction being you, the patient, but also people around you. Having said that, I would then say this area, the relationship, is extremely important to nourish and secure both seen from the point of the relative and from the point of the patient. My third advice would be that um, you should take every chance in life to become the editor in your own life. And the more you can edit, the better. Well, that's very profound, Christopher. And, you know, as you said, 
most people do not experience cancer alone. And you know, they have partners or significant others who are particularly vulnerable emotionally. And often they need as much support as, as the person who has cancer, who has had cancer. What can be done to, to make it better for them? What can be done to support the partners or, or the close family of those people who have cancer? Because for them, it's, it's only from personal experience, I can say it's almost harder because not only do they have to support the person who has cancer, but they also have to try to maintain some sort of semblance of normal life, you know? Well, I think that, that uh, today we have this medical model in which we treat uh, cancer as an individual disease. The, the, the tumor belongs to the person. That's okay. Uh, seen from a biological point of view, but but it doesn't make sense when we go into every other aspect of life. But this also goes for diabetes, and cardiovascular disease, for obesity, for rheuma, for arthritis issues, for thyroid disorders. Every chronic disease has a partner, so to speak. So every citizen with a chronic disease has a person or a partner, partner not being a spouse, but one person you partner up with, you team up with. And in my mind, we have to rethink the medical model. And first of all, we have to give birth to, to a model in which we use the patient and the closest relative as major resources in our treatment. And second to that, we have to rethink the model, which is now sequential means that we are doing one thing at a time. First, we are facing the diagnostic phase. Then we are planning and uh, outlining a treatment phase. Then we have a cleanup phase called rehabilitation. And then we have a very late cleanup phase called living with late effects. But I don't understand why this is the case. Well, I do understand that's the whole way that the medical profession has organized treatment and specialization, which is very high in our, in our modern societies. But in terms of the model, you need to rethink that model and make it much more integrated so you, from the beginning, try to prehabilitate the patient. There are patients who are obese, have a weight problem, they are smoking, they have alcohol problems, they have dietary problems, work problems, whatever, at date of diagnosis. We know we have a window of, let's say, four to six weeks because first time we in, in surgery, we always talked about Knife time, meaning when are we putting the knife in the skin? When are we starting? So knife time means that when knife time starts, it's a metaphor for now we start the treatment. And in that time window between diagnosis and treatment, today we say to the patient, go home, drink some red wine, uh, wait for me, I send you a letter and then we call you in and we start off the treatment. Instead of having a very active time period where we could uh, engage the patient and the partner in changes that would make the patient much more in a situation where he or she could tolerate the, the nightmare of treatment that we are starting up at the date of night time. So therefore, I think the entire model now is in its sequential outline is a catastrophe because in modern society, we are not having, I mean, when, when my granddaddy had Parkinson, he was having this as his only disease. And when my mother died, she had three diseases. And when I die, I will probably have six. You would have eight. And my kids will have 10. So that means having a disease being chronic, chronicity, so to speak, is, is calling for another paradigm in the way we're treating these diseases, which, by the way, all are treated independent of each other, which is stupid. So the multi-diseased polypharmacy patient calls for another model than what we did in the old times when we only had one disease at a time because we died from that disease. So when you got a myocardial infection, you died. So it was very easy. When you had your cancer, well, we could do something, but then you die. 
now we survive from all these diseases. This means that we come to the hospital with one disease, in this case cancer. You have other diseases already in place and you are treated for them. And we expect you to survive for 40, 50 years with this disease. So therefore, this question you're putting me is both calling for a different paradigm in who is diseased, the, the epidemic, the social the epidemic quality of cancer, and how do we treat cancer patients not as an isolated entity in the world, but as a disease among several diseases, because the new treatments we're giving these cancer patients will give them other chronic diseases. Now we label them late effects, but what it is in fact is cardiovascular disease, it's diabetes, it's changed in the immune function, it's changed in the neurological system. You cannot do this and that. You have physical disabilities. And all that is diseases. It's not something which is specific for cancer. Well, it is because it's specific that we are seeing it in cancer patients, but the diseases would be treated symptomatic as if they had arisen de novo before we had our cancer. So these two aspects cause for differences in the models that we treat cancer. Yeah, fantastic, Christopher. And one thing you touched on before was you said that there are many factors that are not really investigated or given enough attention in terms of daily life and daily practice when it comes to cancer and to deal with cancer mentally. So what what are those things and what can we do about it? Well, well, I I'm not a psychologist, don't forget that. So so I'm not the real expert in some ways for in some aspects there are things I wouldn't know about. But what I think the the entire area of psychological or psychiatric aspects of cancer has been overlooked mostly because we don't know really how to deal with it or should we uh, in the ecology clinic deal with it or is this an area for the GP or who, whose responsibility is it? Why aren't you just happy that you survived? It's difficult for me, Joe, to come up, you know, say this is how you do, but I think uh, I don't have a, you know, an easy first aid book that I, I can tell you, but I can say that you have to take it serious. You, you have to take it serious both for the patient and for the closest relatives. That the cancer disease is actually calling for more mental uh, interventions than, than you believe, so to speak. But this is also the case for diabetes. This is also the case for cardiovascular disease. It's not, it's not different from all other chronic diseases. But we're not used to seriously setting up a model where psychology and social factors plays the same role as the somatic interventions. And most of the reason why we are so uh, thin in this area, so to speak, is that in my mind, uh, psychology and social uh, social workers haven't been good in documenting the effect of their interventions. So where medicine has this century-long tradition of documenting, describing the effect of the interventions, their practice, this is not the case for psychology and social, social uh, studies. And therefore, there have been easy targets for uh, reduction in staff when hospitals are cutting down in the public sector. Because what you see is that in the private hospital sector, for example, in the US, the access to these resources are enormous because you can pay for it through your uh, insurance. So insurance-paid hospitals have a completely different setup, a completely different orchestra of, of things you can, you can offer the patients. But when we talk about public systems, as we know in Australia, and we know here in Scandinavia, UK, Holland, Germany, and so on, Canada, it's typically systems that have been threatened by cut down, cut back, because governments uh, feel they have to show that the public sector is effective compared to the private sector in order to secure the survival of the public sector. Yeah, that's fantastic, Christopher. There's lots, lots to think about. 
Yeah, it's true. Thank you so much. Okay, it was a pleasure too. Take care down there, right? Yeah, absolutely. You too.